I'd like to welcome uh, Benjamin and Jacob. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure, yeah. I'm Benjamin Marsh. I'm pastor of First Alliance Church, Winston-Salem in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, Jacob Honeycutt. Um, I am a master's student in history at Baylor University right now. Um, about to graduate in a few months. Well, congratulations, Jacob. I hope you're you're going to stay in Waco, I hope. Um, maybe not. <laughs> well, we're, we're here to discuss a, a topic, I think, uh, near and dear to everybody in Waco, and that's Christian nationalism. Stephen Wolf recently published his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, with Canon Press. And thanks to the tireless works of uh, Rod Dreher and Alistair Roberts, it was revealed that Wolf's close collaborator and co-host of the Ars Politica podcast, Thomas Acord, was a secret uh, kinist, uh, racist, anti-Semite. Uh, he had choice words to say about women, uh, etc. And, you know, he lost his job as a, a headmaster of a Christian classical school. And this has set off something of an online firestorm, a lot of debate among especially Reformed Christians, but evangelicals in general and uh, Christian Twitter in general. And so I thought it would be interesting to have Ben and Jacob on to talk about the issues of Christian nationalism, the present moment, what it means, where we're going, etc. So basically, um, the con- you know immediate context for the controversy is you have um, Thomas Accord um, and Stephen Wolf, right? And Thomas Accord is this guy who um, graduated from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary several years ago. Um, I have some friends that were in classes with him there, actually. And um, they testified to him being kind of, in in fact, critical of evangelicalism and of the seminary, even while he was there, you know, kind of expressing views that were critical of it to the right, saying it's woke and so on, um, even at that point in time. But it seems that he became more and more increasingly um, radicalized um, to the far right, uh, in the years following that. Um, and uh, he was a part of the Geneva Commons, which is a notorious group of a lot of far-right kind of reformed people um, that was on Facebook. And he had a lot of connections with different uh, people kind of in this general online uh, right-wing uh, reformed community uh, was relatively well-known. I mean, whenever the... Christian national case for Christian nationalism book came out. Um, Stephen Wolf hosted a co-hosted a uh, Twitter space on Twitter with um, himself. Um, I believe it was Clifford Humphrey, who's an Anglican, uh, Timon Klein, who's a, a Presbyterian at Westminster Seminary, and Thomas Accord. Uh, so, and Stephen Wolf and Thomas Accord have co-hosted this podcast, Ars Politica, um, for several years, which is now over, I think. Uh, and uh, they met evidently in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where they were both at that point, Acord was actually, um, I, yeah, he was headmaster because he, he had been there before to do a bachelor's degree, but at that point he was headmaster. And then uh, Stephen Wolf was doing a PhD in political theology at, uh, or political philosophy, not theology uh, at LSU. When this emerged, I feel like a lot of people, including myself, that were familiar with Acord, always kind of 
knew that he was very um what they call edgy um which is a, a bit of a, a loaded word but he i mean looking back as i've looked back at some of his even public posts on his known account not this um pseudonymous account that would come up and even there there was a lot of um posts that were relatively uh racist in nature as some of them were shown even on um Alistair roberts article um, and um but not as fully as on his the synonymous account that would come out um, and just to but, be very clear i mean when we're talking about racism this is not oh you know as somebody like douglas wilson might want to say well what does racism even mean we're talking about calling black people chimps explicit anti-Semitism, you know, it's, it's pretty cut and dry issue. And that's why nobody reputable is still defending him essentially. Right. Well, the, the chimps comment and things like that were on his, um, that was on his alt non-account. Yeah. Yeah. But even on his, uh, main account, there were, um, kind of, you know, playing with fire a little bit. Like he, he did a poll question, like, so the U S government says that, uh, or sees interracial marriage and same-sex marriage as linked together, um, like in the jurisprudence. And so would you rather have a society where both are allowed or where both are banned? And he made this as a poll question on his Mm. main public Twitter. So kind of playing with the edge like that. Um, Well, I I didn't realize until you just mentioned Geneva Commons that I looked it up. I mean, he's part of that crew at Geneva that went after Amy Bird uh, when her books came out. And so in addition to the um, rampant racism, I'm sure there was a healthy sprinkling of outright misogyny. Uh, oh, if yeah. you go through Ars Politica, they have a whole episode on this where they, it's not just enough to attack egalitarian theology or complementarian theology. They go back through all the waves of feminism and problematize women's right to vote uh <laughs> you know, universal suffrage, abolitionism, and all those things were, you know, problematized on their podcast. Well, what's funny, though, is how, and I don't mean to cut you off, Jacob, but was how how personal even some of his comments, I'm just looking on Amy's website, were about her hair, for example, and, and how her hair looked like antique furniture. I mean, it wasn't just like a because uh, I see these guys kind of sweep their misogyny into a intellectualized, um, mm-hmm. like, you know, just want to do this in a theoretical framework kind of way. But, but the way that he does this and the way that the other guys in Geneva Commons, <clears throat> I mean, they were all about going after the person. And uh, that's so indicative of a, of a character underneath whatever your kind of theological, philosophical, political veneer is that you try to put on. Mm hmm. Yeah, so I guess to fast forward with the controversy, you know, it came out, he was removed from his job, thanks to Rod Dreher, of all people, asking the school, because of Rod Dreher's children attend the school where he was headmaster. And yeah, then, can I, can yeah, I jump in with some of the, um, how the controversy unfolded? So it was last, so last Wednesday, um, the day before Thanksgiving, actually, um, I, you know, woke up, saw on Twitter, um, some... I think Alistair Roberts and Neil Shinvi had already jumped into some stuff at this point. Um, they, um, Alistair Roberts put out some, I, I guess, um, at, at this point, you know, I can understand that they were teasers basically to what, to the full content that he would put out, but he's kind of 
introducing some stuff about Thomas Accord and saying, Hey, um, you know, we should, you know, this is not, this is Thomas Accord. He's saying it's on his anonymous account, Tullius Adland. Um, and it was some, it was some argument about, um, how white nationalism can be anti-fragile against CRT and wokeism and um, Black Lives Matter and all these things. Um, and then Neil Shinvey retweeted it with, or quote tweeted it with some kind of just, you know, we should be cautious about, you know, what, who, the people who are associating with this Christian nationalism project. At the time, he, he was reviewing Stephen Wolf's book on Christian nationalism but um, I um, saw some other people somewhere else um, pulling up some Tullius Adlin tweets that were, um, or, okay, at this point, that's not what happened. Actually, at this point, I went to Tullius Adlin's Twitter, and I scrolled down just a little bit and saw immediately also this comment he made about the movie or the, the Netflix show Cuties, um, which was this scandal over this um show a few years ago, this French show that a lot of conservatives thought was uh, pedophilic or, you know, whatever, not going to get into the whole debate, but um, the comment he made about it was like, well, the, the 10 to 12 year old girls in it, you know, aren't basically aren't attractive anyway. They're basically, they have horse faces and they're, you know, they're, they're we all know they're just going to grow up to be fives. And it's this comment that very much is sexualizing uh, young girls. And so what I did, um, which nobody else had done at that point, was put together the CRT or put together the white nationalists can be anti-fragile against CRT and the pedophilic comment. And I made like a pick collage of it and posted it on Twitter and tagged Stephen Wolf and said, hey, did you know your podcast host said all these things? And I was pretty uh, harsh in my um, language that I had like a four tweet thread of that, but that blew up significantly. And then I started getting flooded with uh, DMs um, from people, um, accounts that I didn't even know who said that they knew Thomas Accord or they were in his community and some were to the effect of, he, we know, I know he's been a Nazi for years, but I haven't had evidence to prove it. Thank you for posting this. Good. We'll be contacting his school. And so people, it was not even necessarily people involved in Christian Twitter. It was some, you know, random people that I had never um, heard of who saw it and, you know, had known Thomas Accord. One guy said that he had been, um, or a couple of guys said they had been in a secret white nationalist groups with Thomas Accord online for a few years. And then they had had a change of heart, um, but they remembered that he was in these groups. Um, this is all hearsay. So I don't, well, this was also know. documented by <laughs> Alistair Roberts. When you go and, you know, you yeah. have these white nationalist websites, you know, yeah. authors like Ehud Wood and uh, Neil Desperandum yeah. linking yeah. to Tullius Adland or to Thomas Accord by name, right. you know, they're, it's not a big secret. It, it blew up. And um, by the next morning, the report started to come out um, that he had lost his job. And it was not clear exactly. This is on Thanksgiving. And it was not clear exactly what happened. Um, but um, I, you know, saw some, th there's some threads started to put out that started to uh, 
make a plausible case for maybe this was misinformation. Maybe this was not him. Um, here are these reasons that this is not him. And yeah, his friend Dominic I think Fu was, did that intentionally. He was yes, Dominic Fu, Rubik yeah. Rabbit. Um, and you know, in retrospect, I think this was somewhat of a gaslighting effort. Yeah. Uh, that you know made me made me feel bad. Like, oh, I might have caused this man to lose his job. Um, it's not even determined that he lost his job. In his own statement, yeah. it sounded like he resigned. Right. You know. So right. it, did he, was he removed? Did he resign? If you're on these boards, I mean, you know, one of the things that we'll do if you're on a board and you encounter this kind of situation is just to invite the person to, to resign. Say, look, here's the evidence. You can either go through a process that's going to look bad on everybody and drag this thing out, or you can go ahead and, and submit your resignation. So I have to imagine that he can rightfully say I resigned, but that's because the board probably held his feet to the fire. Mm. Right. But so I, I posted a thread that day that said, you know, there's more evidence out. Maybe I wasn't wasn't right. You know, I, I have mm -hmm. to admit this um, in humility here. I don't want, you know, to. Yeah, you were catching a lot of hell for this, Jacob. I was and you still a lot are. Of and but th thankfully, I also got um, a lot of messages from even, you know, people that I respect, people that are high up in various um, institutions that were looking into this saying, you know, what, hold on. Um, just, just wait till all the evidence comes out. Like we are pretty sure you're going to be vindicated. Mm -hmm. Messages like this or messages saying, you know, you're being gaslit, you're being lied to. It's pretty clear that Accord is lying. And so I, that made me feel better and assured that, you know, enough people there were enough people who knew for sure that he was lying and there was evidence here that i and i got the i saw some of the evidence too um that was going to be released and so i um, knew that i just needed to hold on block a lot of anonymous accounts which just so many different anonymous accounts coming out of the woodwork uh from all over the place to um yeah be like we're gonna contact your church and i'm like you yeah. know, whatever, like they're, they're going to listen to white nationalist adjacent anonymous accounts over Alistair Roberts and others. Mm -hmm. No, but you did um, lose friends over this. Uh, well, so-called friends. Yeah. But um, I mean, there were people that you were, you knew Twitter, that Twitter you, friends. Yeah, yeah. There were people that you were on good terms with that turned on you. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it became clear who, um, I think this was kind of a drawing of the lines moment, you know, who is yeah. going to stand um, even even in the Christian nationalist camp, you have folks like Alistair Roberts, Brad Littlejohn, um, others who um, probably don't want to be named or dragged into this, but that I'm aware of, who are clear um, in their stance against, um, who have made their clear made their stance clear against kinism, um, mm -hmm. against this form of racism, and um, drawn that as a line. And there are others who double down um like um william wolf or stephen wolf or doug wilson um or you know most of the american reformer crew um uh, there's there's some diversity there i can't really tell exactly what's going on but mm. people who have doubled down and said e even after accord came out and admitted that he lied and they're willing to dispose of him but they're still doubling down and saying well 
this was still a leftist smear to destroy um, Stephen Wolf's book, and we're still hmm. going to double down on his book. Pastor Marsh, why is this happening? What what is what is going on in American evangelicalism that causes this to be the issue that people are debating, and why is this the controversy du jour? That's a good question. I think that you have a uh, kind of a um, joining together of a lot of undercurrents in American evangelicalism uh, that I probably won't even be able to name all of them, but just some that pop into mind. One is everybody lost their minds during COVID and they lost it one way or another. And I would bet that half these books that have all popped out were written uh, a bulk of them when everybody was sitting around their apartments in their underwear with nothing to do for you know a year and a half. Um, I think that there was a strong reaction uh, to the people within evangelicalism who kind of broadly went along with uh, the the COVID guidelines that issued from the government, uh, with the shutdowns, the lockdowns, and all that sort of stuff. And I think that also aligned with the whole Black Lives uh, Matter movement and the marches that were going on across the United States. And some pastors participated in them, supported them, were vocal about mm -hmm. that. And that ossified into this idea of the regime uh, and this notion of regime theology. Um, uh, I've been called a regime theologian, even though I have no idea what that is. And I'm also not a theologian. I'm just a local church pastor. Um, but, but anything that could appear as a resistance to that kind of began to coalesce online. Um, it also, you know, kind of conjoined with very old school ideas within evangelicalism, of, uh, you know, a strong patriarchy, uh, of, you know, anything that's kind of against new forms of sexuality, anti-LGBTQ, all that sort of stuff. Um, and you, you had, I think, as a result, people finding each other uh, online or through expressing themselves on Twitter and other people kind of liking that. And then they start talking with each other and creating their side groups, their DMs and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then also, you know, another confluence is just this rise of Canon Press and, and Moscow and the spread of, of these very patriarchal, uh, you know, roll back the clock 250 years kind of ideas that are coming out of Moscow. And people are being drawn to that. Um, people both in Baptist worlds and also in uh, Presbyterian worlds are being drawn to that uh, that's coming out of Moscow. So I, th I think you had all that kind of happening together, a little bit of a gathering of some dry, uh, you know, tinder and some easy wood to burn. And then all it takes is one match to, to spark that fire up. And, and, you know, when you have people that are assumed on the basis of their theological commitments, which, you know, most evangelicals would find, I think, some kind of broad theological identification, whether you use Billy Graham as the moral center of, tra of traditional evangelicalism or wherever you go with that. Uh, when you have people that you assume, hey, you should be on my side uh, in this, whether that's you should be on my side in supporting church opening against the government, you should be on my side uh, when it comes to traditional sexuality, you should be on my side when it comes to voting for Donald Trump, and you're not, you become the target. You you are actually worse than the people that are much, much farther to the left of you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Jacob becomes a, a bad guy. Other people in online spaces become the absolute worst people because they are supposed to be in the orthodox camp, uh, not just theologically, but, you know, uh, um, 
when it comes to ethics and politics, but you're not. You might be theologically aligned with those people, but you don't have the same politics as them, and that drives them crazy. I think I think what drives them um, even more crazy uh, about me is that I have pretty close politics to them in many respects, um, or in more respects than you know somebody. Um, to, to a certain extent with Ben um, and, you know, to a greater extent with even more progressive folks, they can just say, oh, they're, you know, these are progressive pastors or whatever. Like we're just going to write, you either use them as a somebody to quote tweet and dunk on or write them off. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty interested in these conversations about national conservatism and, um, I don't like the term Christian nationalism, but insofar as like Brad Littlejohn and some of these other intellectuals at Davenant Institute and um, these places are using it, I'm interested in those discussions. Um, but they, you know, um, but since I don't go along with this, um, I mean, there's a lot of things adjacency to to kinism, I feel like, and some of these kind of strong localist ethno, almost ethno nationalist adjacent um I want to use the term adjacent as much as possible. So I'm not directly necessarily like I know for certain they're ethno-nationalists. Well, it's good that you bring up this word adjacent because this is also evocative of this affect that you don't have that some of these guys do have. You're not going around, you know, talking about female adjacent guys. Exactly. You're not engaging in this Bronze Age pervert style right wing discourse. And I think that's also a fault line here. In addition to the adjacency to kinism, I think an even bigger thing that separates me from some of these people is um, my views on gender and um, which like I'm not I'm not even egalitarian. Um, you know, I I still hold to, you know, male pastors and that kind of thing. But these these guys, you know, in line with Moscow and Canon Press, Doug Wilson are promoting a very, very strong uh, patriarchalism. Um, which is honestly disgusting to me. Um, and a, a lot of ideas that just don't make any sense to me. Like it feels like they have never had any female friends or talked to any women. Um, is which sh- shout out to our one Christian nationalist, uh, tweeter friend that I won't name cause he doesn't need any unnecessary attention. Who's strongly egalitarian. He's like the only guy out there holding the line on Twitter. Oh yes, but he's 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 um, I mean he's been falling in with with me um in terms of, um, in terms of, he's horrified by this Accord situation and hmm. um I think aligns with Davenant Institute, Brad Littlejohn and 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 those folks. Yeah, so we should we should stay, take a step back here, and I want to present my thesis, and then you both respond, and then we can address some of the substantive claims of the Christian nationalists. You know, can, I, can I just say how wonderful it is to have a real leftist present his thesis because then I'm not the leftist in the conversation? Yeah, so obviously I'm very far outside of this camp as a uh, avowed communist and as an Eastern Orthodox. I uh, have nothing to do with any of these people, right? And I'm also in France. Yeah, I also live in France. I'm in a completely different context. But I did grow up in very conservative, I don't want to say fundamentalist, but let's say fundamentalist adjacent. Um, evangelicalism. And I remember growing up, we really believed that we could win, both Mm. electorally and culturally, that we believed that evolution was false. 
and that you know I could go out and make some plaster casts and make some dinosaur bones and show people and tell them, look, evolution's not true. I can make some dinosaur bones for you. You want to do some paleontology? Let's do it in the backyard. And we did that. And a bunch of us kids went out and made dinosaur bones. And we went to the Creation Museum. And people did, you know, Proposition 8 and all these different uh, things to stop gay marriage, to do all this stuff. And there was a lot of success. I remember one of the pastors at the mega church I went to as a kid. He was very close to a lot of the uh, conservative resurgence people in the 90s. You know, he was well connected to those people. And it's not at all... uh, how shall I put it? There was not this paranoia of, oh, the government's going to come kill us that I see. And I'm, I'm being very serious here. I'm not trying to make a stereotype. I've seen many conservatives talk about their fears that they're going to be round up and killed or put in gulags or something like this because they're anti-LGBT. And I think the reality is that the evangelicals lost the culture war so totally and utterly that they've lost their their sense of relation to american culture more broadly and even further i think electorally you know and i'm not somebody that engages in electoral politics at all but i think it's it's very clear that electorally women aren't voting for their candidates yeah abortion on the ballot you know they can have the supreme court as a minority of a few people remove the constitutional right for abortion but they can't actually get voters to vote it down. And I think this has led to a position where a lot of the more conservative evangelicals realize that like liberal democracy won't get them the goods. They need some kind of authoritarian form of minority government. And that's where the whole League of the South, Doug Wilson retreat to the Northwest or what Ehud Wood called the Northwest imperative, you know, of making a white ethno state in this part of the country because they have no ability to to deal with America as it is. I, what do you all think of that? Is that a unfair uh, on my part? Well, I, I, I've been reading a lot of, uh, well, I can't say a lot of because I don't read the German, but maybe I'll teach myself, but diving into Emmanuel Hirsch. And, uh, you know, he was this preeminent theologian in Germany during the Weimar Republic, uh, really became the intellectual basis uh, for the religious uh, Volk movement and uh, leading into, you know, the rise of Hitler and Nazi Germany um, wrote these massive tomes of reform theology was known in his day. And for even 30 years after the war as kind of the preeminent scholar on Luther. I mean, he knew Luther like the back of his hand. And the thing that, that uh, Hirsch talks about over and over again, uh, is this necessity of the nation state being fully realized as, um, you know, the second of the two kingdoms of God and how the two of those have to interact. And uh, when your one kingdom seems to be so debased and so off from the other kingdom, the spiritual religious kingdom of the church, uh, that creates a cognitive dissonance in your existence as a human being. Uh, if you've come from that kind of theological background. So if you grew up thinking we're going to seize the reins of power in the world like we have it in the church, and that doesn't materialize, instead the world continues to devolve compared to the evolution positively in your mind of the church, uh, what can you experience but some sort of resignation, anger, frustration, 
of, of thriving for power. And, you know, even Hirsch would write that uh, we don't need to have democracy. Democracy is all about materialism. And, uh, mm. and it's, you know, Jewish materialism versus the Aryan uh, idealism. And so we've got to switch back to an Aryan idealism. And, you know, that was the whole theological underpinning of, of that movement of, of uh, national socialism. So I, I think it's, you know, you hate to do Godwin's Law, but man, you read Hirsch and you read uh, some of these current authors and it's like you're reading verbatim. I yeah. mean, you're basically reading an English translation of a German work. And I doubt these guys have even read Hirsch. I, I, I can't imagine. Well, they're suffused they want, with romantic nationalist reactionary ideology. Like that's right. what their and whole thing is, you know, and I, I they're guess just recreating Hirsch. Yeah. And I guess to, if I want to put a really fine point on it and then I'll, I'll let Jacob talk or Benjamin, you can continue. I think fundamentally when I was growing up and that wasn't that long ago, I'm talking, you know, I was in school in the two thousands, the 1990s. Even if we were not in power, we believed that we were part of the moral majority. We evangelical fundamentalist conservatives. I think that evangelicals no longer think of themselves as part of the moral majority, but as a diminishing moral minority. And they they think of themselves as under siege. And that's what's producing the Benedict option. That's what's producing the case for Christian nationalism. That's what's producing canon press, etc. Well, if, if you read... Um... If you've read uh, Kristen Dumais' book, um, Jesus and John Wayne, right, one of her main theses in this book is that um, the mentality of being under siege is a constant throughout um, evangelical history since the 1950s. Mm. And it's constantly brought up again and again um, as a way to mobilize, um, you know, evangelical voters, um, a way it, it particularly brought out when democratic presidents are in power. Um, mm. So um, do you think that's true ben, out, in your experience? Cause you're a bit older. Well, don't, don't Jacob, don't you know that quoting Dumais is going to mark you as a lib now? I mean, you, you, you were a conservative yes. adjacent guy. Now you're a liberal adjacent guy. You went the other, other way. I, I think he's absolutely correct. I think uh, this idea of being under siege, I mean, I mean, this Man, is why guys going... like James Wood talk about the negative world, you know, the whole. Yeah, but it's amazing that they, that they start the negative world like 10 years ago. And I'm like, dude, like when I was raised, they were trying to boycott Disney. You know, the Baptists did their massively unsuccessful boycott of Disney. Um, I think that there's a constant dialectic between church and state that could be positive in many ways, but is consistently cast by evangelicals for one reason or another, as, as this negative thing. And it's mm. a constant tension. Um, probably goes back, you know, all the nationalists like to start this as something after World War II, but I, I don't think that's an astute reading of history. I, I think that notion of, the, of that tension goes back to the very founding, prior to the founding, even in the tension between the mercantilism of some of the first settlers versus the Puritans. Oh, the American the, founding. The, You're talking about 1776 and all that. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I think that that tension has existed uh, for, for a very long time. Um, but there is this overwhelming... Uh, notion intellectual spiritual notion that that instead of it being a tension instead of it being a conversation instead of it being something that can be resolved democratically it's no we are under attack 
Mm. And that just gets this constant rhetorical repetition all through American history, especially since I've been alive, uh, of, you know, we are under attack. And, um, and this is one of the reasons why they hate that. both of you is because you punch right. And part of the rules of the based and red-pilled cowards club is that you never punch right. Right. <laughs> You never punch. Well, I, think- I, I, I punch right a lot more than Jacob, so I got to let Jacob because at least he's tried to be fair and balanced. I'm, I'm uh, probably too far on the other side. I, I, I think, um, you know, while this, this impulse, this, um, yeah, impulse to say we're under attack um, and use that to to mobilize um, the evangelical right in particular has has been a constant. Um, like after the '60s and '70s, it, it helped. Um, usher in the Reagan revolution, um, very much so. Um, it was used heavily during Obama's presidency, you know, on talk radio and so on. And, but I, I think a, a difference now is that it's actually mostly correct for the first time. Maybe not necessarily the, the attack, um, like Christian, like this, like saying that Christians are persecuted. I don't think that's, that's fully really an accurate way to see it. But it, it definitely is correct that Christian, that conservative Christians, um, have largely lost the culture wars, as you were saying earlier. Um, just was looking at data from, um, I, f- I forget who's who's the uh, the guy that posts all the um, the the polls on t- Ryan Burge, Ryan Burge. Yeah, just looking at data from him this morning, and on every single conservative evangelical social issue, so to speak, the last ten years have been disastrous for them. Uh, support for same-sex marriage has gone up from like 45% to 75%. Um, support for legalization of marijuana, the, about the exact same. Um, support, the people saying that extramarital sex is always wrong, which um, this refers to like cheating or affairs or sex outside of maybe polyamorous relationships, not premarital sex. People saying that extramarital sex is always wrong has gone down from like 90% to like 65 or 70%. Um, and, you know, just on a whole host of issues, abortion and, you know, su- support for abortion from the Roe v. Wade in 73 all the way to uh, about 2015 was always a, a 50-50-ish issue. Depends on how you ask the question, depends on a lot of factors, but it was always close to 50-50. And in the last five years or so, it's the pro-choice side has gained an incredible amount of steam in the polls. And so all these, you know, and you see that in the fact that they can't even pass resolutions um, banning abortion in Kentucky, of all places. Um, or in Yeah, that was a ex- surprising one, wasn't it? Yeah, and the exit polls in Georgia showed that 65% of vote, or six, 50, 58%, it was there. 58% of voters in Georgia um, thought that abortion should be legal in most or all cases. And so you have d- deep state Bible Belt states like deep south Bible Belt states like Georgia and Kentucky where you have, you know, you can't get majorities against abortion. It, I think, you know, some of more so than um, in the 60s or 70s or even during the Obama presidency, um, this idea that evangelical Christians are losing the culture is actually true. This is, I think, so, also one of the reasons why they're so opposed to Tim Keller of all people, is because they're they have the exact opposite, like the precise opposite of his view. You know, he's all about going to the city, loving the city. Stephen Wolf and Thomas Acord on their podcast are like, right. "Flee the city, get out of the city." Well, 
You know, Stephen Wolf is moving color. to North Carolina to live on some homestead because they're they're running. They're, they're yeah, the running. irony of Wolf moving to North Carolina is, is I think he's moving probably within about 20 miles of me. And you guys should get breakfast and talk. Yeah, we should hang out. We'll do a podcast together. I heard he needs a new yeah. co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's nasty. <laughs> I'm keeping this in. That's hilarious. Oh, no. The thing about Tim Keller. Um, so I've actually, you know, in a, in a space before one time, um, it's talking about, you know, the different versions of, Christian nationalism or, you know, this very vague, broad term, what you mean by this or, mm-hmm. you know, national conservatism. And insofar as, you know, I'm interested in national conservatism discussions like have uh, promoted by Davenant Institute or Theopolis or some of these other groups, I actually find Tim Keller extremely helpful. And I really like things he has to say about justice. Um, he has this uh, article, um, really long article as, as his are always really long um, in his gospel and life quarterly, where he talks about, he, he compares like the liberal system of justice and then um, a Marxist system of justice. Um, and then like a postmodern and um, I forget utilitarian. See, he, he looks at all these different secular views of justice. He says, these are, you know, things that they point out correctly. And these are also, there are also all these things which these get wrong. And then he um, articulates a biblical system of justice based like largely in Old Testament law and says this basically says this is what should be the basis of law in our society. Um, and these people like Stephen Wolf or, you know, these, these type of Christian nationalists don't like it because some of the ideas he says are, especially on economics, are, are, are more leftist sounding of like we mm. should have economic justice and these different things but it to me it's you know it is not an argument of like we should have just uh this neutral liberal democracy where we don't impose christian ideas into the, the law uh, and it's not this you know it's not this quietest retreatist position either you know tim keller is a, a post 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 millennial guy and he's saying you know, here's what biblical justice looks like, and this should be the basis of our law. And so it's so funny that they they rage against Tim Keller so much. Um, I think the city versus um, rural retreat um, distinction is a big one to point out because I think that's that's even an emerging distinction w- within the Christian nationalist like camp. Yeah. You, you see some people who, um, like on the Davenant Institute side, who I think are more inclined towards a, um, you know, um, a cause, not, I don't want to say cosmopolitan. Uh, they're not saying, you know, they're saying we should, priv- they're definitely saying we should privilege certain ideas over others, but um, they're saying we should do this in a sense of a more like, um, I guess in the, these different people and pluralities of uh, people that are living in the polity should be unified in the nation, so to speak. Do you think it's fair to contrast within Christian nationalism a tension between the ethnic and the civic nationalisms? Right. So they're promoting a very strong civic nationalism Mm -hmm. where everything's unified. I would compare it to the Great Britain model of, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries after they've incorporated Scotland and Ireland and Wales and after they've extended 
toleration to different Protestant groups, they're saying all this is unified in this nation, in this national identity we have as the UK. Mm. Um, and so, I think that's what some of those people are, are more promoting, whereas Stephen Wolf and others are promoting a more, we need to... Um, Little England. Andrew Torba and Andrew Isker explicitly promote this in their book. Um, and Torba's the uh, anti-Semite of the, the Those worst. some racist dudes over there, but, man. Yeah, but they say, you know, we should separate and basically do the, the Benedict option and, and homeschool and kind of build our own parallel Christian society. Uh, and that's a more separatist, localist kind of, you know, definitely, um, to me, the mentality of that corresponds a lot with ethno-separatist, ethno-nationalist kind of. Those guys are all going to be pretty surprised when their kids run off to France like Henry and uh, <laughs> become leftist. Uh, right. <laughs> well, I just read the Bible and apply it. You know, I just faithfully exposit scripture and holy tradition and the fathers. I mean, that's my main critique of the Stephen Wolf book is that. His grasp of the book of Genesis is non-existent. His you know, claims, well, I mean, we can go into it if you all want, but his claims about the origins of nations and the origins of government, Augustine would tear him a new one. It doesn't make well, any I, sense. I, if you compare that, it's so funny you mentioned Keller, because if you take Keller's book, uh, two of his books he's written, I've really enjoyed. I haven't read everything. Um, spiritually, of course, I love his book on prayer, but he wrote this book. Ministries of Mercy, the Call of Jericho Road, which was his book back in the late 90s, kind of calling evangelical churches to, you know, properly shape the, the ministries in their church uh, along the contours of, of the, the story of the Samaritan. And um, it's just it's just a great book. And then he has this really long book, a textbook called Center Church, which he used with all of his uh, students and everybody up there in New York City, talking about reaching the city, talking about benefiting the city. In fact, I think um, Neil Shenvey and some others did some tweets uh, probably six months ago, maybe a year ago, where they would post a quote of his without attributing it to him. And everybody was saying, oh, that's Christian nationalism. You know, mm -hmm. that's terrible. And there was like this gotcha. Ha ha ha. It's Tim Keller. Yeah. I think the contours of the disagreement have flown past that as we have like a real kind of racist kinist christian nationalism that's shown up uh with some of those kind of people um but yeah it's it's really i think a question of like you said reading the bible of 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 this idea of the gospel like the thing that we're raised have raised in as evangelicals is this notion that the uh evangel that the gospel the good news has some sort of meaning and impact in a supernatural sense and that the fundamental work of the church is the gospel. It's it's not control. It's not power. Mm -hmm. It's not government. Um, that government and the way people lead is at best kind of secondary. Uh, but I find these guys are elevating it uh, using these very, like you said about Wolf. I mean, Wolf says, I'm not going to talk about the Bible. I'm not a theologian. But then he predicates his book entirely on this kind of fabricated um naturalistic theology uh that you know really few people have outside I mean, of kinnis and frankly <laughs> wolf's book if you just remove the term christian and put in hindu or pagan it would work there's nothing yeah. really christian about the book at all there's no yeah, he's basically theological anthropology is garbage He's sanctifying natu natural inclinations, uh, which you can argue about, and natural theology has its place in debate, uh, but certainly doesn't make it a distinctly Christian book. If your first basis of natural theology 
uh, is natural theology. You're writing a book about nature and you should just proceed from there. You're essentially doing a Rousseau or a Locke or, you know, some sort of kind of enlightenment. Uh, I mean, that's what their project is. That's kind of the secret of this whole thing is that they are doing, you know, 18th and 19th century romantic nationalism. And we know where that goes. It's not a secret well, where that goes. That's why they it's are, But they're also using Marx. And that's the thing that is so funny to me. Is oh, that, that's part of the reactionary. I mean, a lot of reactionaries do that today, I think. Is that just to get like, ha ha ha, we can use your thing? Well, I mean, the reality, I mean, if you want my kind of cynical take on it, I would say that if you're going to do a magisterial Protestant political theology, you're going to end up in a problematic place because that's just part of the magisterial Protestant tradition. I mean, there's a reason Rhodesia existed. Right. That's not a, a an accident, right? I tend to be very pro-Protestant on the Anabaptist side. I think Anabaptist yeah. political theology is much closer to something that would be espoused by Jesus Christ, right? But that's unpopular today. That's the opposite direction a lot of these guys are going. You see, man, Presbyterians turning over in their graves over here. No, but I mean, look at what Presbyterian produces. What are you going to do? Well, that's yeah, what it, it is, produces. Are you going to have a it, Geneva? How are you going to have a Geneva if, you know, 40% of the, the people in 25 years are non-binary? How is that supposed to work? How, how are you going to have a Geneva when your Geneva Commons online looks like, <laughs> looks like it did? I mean, my goodness, they... If you go to Amy Bird's site, you can find an open letter about Geneva Commons and how they treated her and oh, yeah. Rachel Miller. It was signed by like 40 pastors, basically like, what is wrong with you people? Yeah, but I mean, that's, I think that's part of the fundamental problematic is that these people, and I would say the Dreyers and the, the Shenvies of the world, I mean, I appreciate what they did in this scandal. You know, I have nothing to critique them for there. I just, you know... The idea that we're going to avoid CRT and we're going to avoid kinism, like there's a reason. Is America built on stolen land or not? You know, it what are we going to make about race? To a Microsoft uh, like person introducing their speech and then they do their land acknowledgments, then you find out for the first time. <laughs> yeah, uh, like, what are we going to do? Like, how are we actually going to deal with race? What is our theological anthropology? And just being well, so like, that, that that's why, like, having you and having these guys. You know, and then having kind of people in the middle, it's it's so valuable because within the context of a democratic system, like the beauty of this system is that it can kind of meaningfully accommodate the expression of all those things, right? Like I'm not mad that he wrote this book because it's good that you know what he believes, right? Like I might be more angrier if, if he was actually president or something and then published his book, uh, but we went down that path and the country has survived thus far uh, in a sense. Um, but you know, the beauty and one of the reasons why I'm so ardently kind of fall in that liberal democratic tradition, uh, is that within that allows for this kind of flexing, uh, like a balloon almost getting blown up to where it can really, really expand in a lot of different directions without popping, uh, without just kind of bursting and flying all over the place. And what, what I think we've seen is when Christian political theology reacts too strongly to the failures of a given political system, whether that's, you know, the, the uh, pre-Hitler reaction to the Weimar Republic and all of its many failures, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, reaction to reconstruction in the Deep South uh, and the way that that kind of blew up uh, with Christians turning the KKK and, and participating in 
you know, the, the great Southern revival of white nationalism, you know, whatever which way that Christians tend to go too far with their political theology, the beauty of democratic liberal democracy is it can accommodate that, flex with it, maybe not produce the best outcomes, but at least not result in the total catastrophic collapse of your society. Do you feel like American but, society is collapsing? See, I, I don't. I guess I'm, I'm a, uh, even though I come across as probably very pessimistic online, mm-hmm. I'm an extremely optimistic person. Um, I mean, in the long run, we're all dead, right? Like that's the... the no, we're all alive. <laughs> that's the gospel. Well, we're, we're all alive in Christ. Yeah. Uh, but from a practical political, you know, situation, we're, we're all non-voting after a certain number of years. Uh, the biggest question is if we can create the conditions for which subsequent generations can continue to make positive decisions for themselves and their families and the ones that they love. That's that's what I'm about. Well, that's what Wolf is like- about. Wolf just thinks that you need a legal apparatus that's going <laughs> to nudge them towards being a good Presbyterian churchgoer and, and a Christian culture. <laughs> but that's a, this is part of the thing, though, is if you listen to him talk, what he'll say is, you know, obviously there are different people groups and that's fine. And what we need is a system of law that promotes the common good, which is going to church. And we need a Christian culture that uh, promotes going to church, etc. And, you know, it, it, it's not immediately obvious. One of the reasons why I'm opposing this so strongly and I'm spending my time going after the, the wolf pack is because I know a lot of people in evangelicalism. And I think the way that Moscow articulates itself I think, let me put my cards on the table. I think Doug Wilson is a kinist, substantively. I agree with Joel McDermott about this. I think he really is a kinist. But the fact that he'll disavow it allows his ideas to propagate, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. What do you think about this, Jacob? Well, I was going to say, um, regarding the the promotion of the common good, conditions for good religion to, to flourish, um, and this kind of cultural Christianity... Um, I'm, I'm closer in agreement to, to Kevin DeYoung, that these were the stronger parts of Wolf's book, um, and less what I'm, you know, strongly disagreeing with than say the ethnicity chapters or the, the terrifying idea of the Christian prince and whatever the heck that is. Um, the, which I think DeYoung puts it well in the sense of a, you know, a a charismatic Caesar-like figure, you know, we've never seen this before or have we, you know? Um, in the 1940s, um, right? So I, but the idea, the young, you know, argued in, in his review, the, the cultural Christianity, uh, chapter was Wolf's strongest chapter in the sense of like, you know, in a society where you, you, that does have, you know, um, kind of cultural ideas that are consistent with, um, with Christianity, it, that, that society is, um, on issues of justice, for example, maybe, um, has a closer, um, idea of what correct justice is that, you know, theoretically could, uh, say this historically, um, I would agree that this is net, this has rarely been, uh, well applied. Like, you know, you could say the U S in the 19th century was numerically had a, had a almost, almost total, um, proportion of the population that would consider themselves Christian, but in terms of their actual system of justice, you know, abysmal on many counts in terms of having, you know, slavery in the South and institutionalized racism and um, many other problems. Um, Well, this is, I think this is the fundamental issue, right, of the book is that they have this, 
at least this is my problematic for the book, is that I think you could give the case for Christian nationalism to your average, you know, Calvary Chapel goer who's disaffected and angry, as Ben was saying earlier, at post-COVID has gone a little bit screw loose, and he could buy it because it's common sensey enough. Maybe, maybe. Right. I, I say I say maybe on that. I, I think... Um, Until the they get to audience. the seed oils, then it's over. Yeah. <laughs> we all love our fries. We all love our, okay, Twinkies. Yeah, I love Crisco. Like... I'm a real American, unlike Stephen Wolf. You're going to take my Crisco from my cold dead hands. <laughs> I think the the biggest audience that is um, really buying into this is actually um, young 20-something-year-old or, yeah, 20-something-year-old uh, white males. Incels. Who are, are disaffected. Yeah, you could say that, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um not all of them I would put in that category. A lot of them, a lot of them are married. That I yeah, they have kids, married in um, yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but young young men who feel disaffected, a lot of them are working class, and I feel like that puts them, gives them suspicion of people like me because you know I'm I'm here in 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 grad school and kind of you know socioeconomically have had opportunities that I think a lot of these men have not had and. They feel like the society is turning against them and that the world is turning against them and that they're, you know, as white men, it's like used to be in charge of the country, so to speak. And now um, they feel like everything is they're, they're the most hated. They're the most hated group. Um, but I feel like I would, I would say when it comes to boomers or Gen X adults, like your typical Calvary Chapel guy or uh I can use my, my dad as an example here. He's, you know, um, in his fifties, uh, um, had been a Republican evangelical, Republican voting evangelical his whole life. Uh, really loved Reagan. Um, been, yeah, pretty, you know, listened to, you know, Rush Limbaugh and all his, um, different talk, talk radio hosts often and really tuned watch, you know, watch Fox news, really tuned into the conservative movement overall. And definitely, yeah, big conservative Republican. He was reading Wolf's book and I, I think he was horrified and, and he's your, your typical, like, you know, Gen X Republican evangelical voter. I mean, Pastor um, Marsh, you are a boomer. What do you, what do no, you make of this no, generational analysis from Jacob? Here. I was born in 82, man. I'm a millennial. I'm a true millennial. First year. Uh, That's the next, isn't it? No, we're right in the middle. Uh, I, I think this is like a recurring post-war theme in some ways of like the, the death of masculinity, right? Like you can mm. go, uh, Susan Faludi wrote about this and Stift uh, back in 99. Like um, feminists have been exploring this concept for decades. Um, to be honest with you, like I think what a lot of people like Wolf and others are reacting to and haven't put a finer point on is something that'll probably make you quite happy. Henry is, is the dominance of, of kind of global capitalism and, and the way that everybody's become an economic unit instead of having some kind of meaning outside of your wallet. And I think that, you know, there's such a reaction to Marxism. There's such a reaction to the critique of capitalism that came out of Marx that people can't quite land somewhere in their critique of capitalism. I mean, I think you got Kanye blowing up on the Jews. You got, you know, 
uh, all the hints of Soros running things behind the scenes. I mean, you got all this kind of reaction that f- shows up as anti-Semitism, but I really think it's anti-capitalism. And nobody can quite put a finger on yeah. it. Uh, and I think if we would do that as a church, I think if we would go back, like it was like as 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 evangelicals, what's the thing you are not allowed to talk about? Jesus's teachings on money. You're allowed to talk about giving to the church, but not about like the church fathers, you know, give away every penny and live with a robe and a, and a, a belt around your waist and then die young because you're diseased and, you know, whatever. It's, it's like we weren't allowed to touch that. Uh, the marriage of capitalism and evangelicalism is so thorough uh, that I think what these guys are scrounging at is finding meaning in a, in a capitalistic world where you are meaningless. You are a unit of measure. And that unit is how much money you can give to Tim Cook, uh, how much you can give to Bezos, how much money you can kind of shift up. Yeah, Dave Ramsey, right? Like Dave Ramsey is. And so Dave Ramsey has to recreate this kind of American machismo, you know, woodchopping sense of like country boyism, because there's no real value found in the teachings about money other than just having more money. Uh, And, uh, you know, that's why I think his whole thing has become this patriarchal abusive shtick as well. But. I really think if the church would 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 go after capitalism in in the way that it ought, you'd find a lot more men finding meaning outside of their hourly wage, and and that's what these guys I think are getting traction on. I think that's what they're 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 able to tread on without anyone ever being able to actually say it. That's what they're actually getting. Your life is being ruined. You you're not getting the job that you want. Uh, you can't go live uh, out in the woods and chop wood and raise ten kids. Why can't you do all that? Well, because you got to go work for FedEx for 13 bucks an hour and your back's blown after a 12 hour shift. You know, nobody wants to say that, but I genuinely think that's the reality. Yeah. If the church were actually living out the apocalyptic gospel, nobody would be in want of a community, right? No, we wouldn't, we wouldn't suffer this alienation because even if we were a, a small minority. You know, I'm far more with Vladimir Soloviev and uh, Soren Kierkegaard in my critique of cultural Christianity than maybe somebody like Jacob is. But even if we were 10 people and we were true believers, we would have a true and beautiful and strong community and we could withstand the world because that's, that's, the, that's what's in the book of Acts. That's in Acts chapter four. If we believed yes. and the spirit came down, we would put all things in common and we would not fear any jail bar or any persecution whatsoever. And that's that's the apocalyptic aspect of the gospel that I think is missing, both from Wolf and Wilson and Acord and Keller and Peter Lightheart and all these guys. I want to see the yeah. apocalyptic gospel preached. Yeah, I, I think Go ahead, uh, um, on the, on these questions, um, Hannah Anderson, if if y'all are familiar with her. Um, often has some good thoughts and linking capitalism to some of this. Um, she had a thread uh, recently uh, last week um, in response to the Accord situation, um, which I kind of want to briefly read a little bit of. She said, um, a quick thread about Christian nationalism, racism, and the challenges of modernity. Our current epidemic of rootlessness, social fragmentation, and waning re- religious identity won't be solved by repeating the sins that got us here in the first place. Uh, to bid it more bluntly, there's a direct link between stealing people from their homelands, denying their full humanity, forcing labor in pursuit of capital gains, s- segregating Christian worship, and everything trads hate about modern life. Um, 
you know, and then she goes on to talk about, you know, make labor about wealth creation and your work will be discounted as well. You know, deny people's humanity. Don't be surprised if our children don't understand their own. Mm. Um, and you know, a lot of folks decry the failures of present society and rightly so, but fewer understand that it was the past that got us here. Um, and it's just kind of idea of, she goes on and on, um, this, this kind of idea that our current um, issues are rooted in this um, alienation and this fragmentation, rootlessness, and this kind of make making um, our value as humans um, capital and labor. And it it is this critique of, you know, she, she has uh, on numerous occasions critiqued aspects of capitalism. Um, and she works with her, her husband's a pastor in rural Virginia um, and had Appalachian areas um, there. And I think they encounter a lot of these, you know, the people who are attracted to um, books like Wolf's book who are kind of dealing with these, you know, the failures of modernity, so to speak, mixed with this this notion of, hey, we're li- the culture wars have, have been lost. And you get this, um, somebody who's articulating this vision of even, I think even though Wolf's, you know, book, as we, we would agree here is, um, on anthropology is seriously flawed and on some of these questions is seriously flawed. The very fact that he even begins the book with looking into anthropology and wants to root political theology in this holistic sense of who we are as human beings. I think you don't see people doing that today. And that's attractive to people. The fact that he that he even does that, and we need people who are articulating political theology and economics and these issues, not just in a sense of like, you know, technocratic uh, like arguments or you know these um, kind of dry policy or things that. Um, How should we actually live? What's our form of life? Or even utilitarian arguments, which have, which have been such a big part of modern life in the last two centuries, but mm. are rooted holistically in the concept of um, how God created us as humans, Imago Dei, and uh, these, um, you know, yeah, that that root, these holistic sense of, you know, orienting the polity towards the common good in the sense of, you know, uh, what is good for us as as human beings. And I think the fact that Wolf's book even attempts to um, answer those questions is, is appealing to people See, and I, who I take a, might and not I, know enough to, might not know enough to know that he's like misusing Turretin or misusing the reformed theological tradition or the Bible. Um, right. <laughs> what I want to tag onto that though, because you said what we need to do is reform the political theology to take into account a real anthropology I actually think you can remove the word political from that entirely. You need to reform our theology and even our ecclesiology in America to more comport with the realities of human existence. Um, Our churches are so depersonalized. I mean, the churches that grew the most before and after COVID are the ones where you can go in and you don't have to talk to somebody. And people actually say that. I didn't have to talk to somebody. I love this church. Uh, because they want to go into a place where they can experience something that's on a stage 
um, reminded of the visual just a couple days ago of that church that has flying drummers in the air for Drummer Boy, literally kind of going back and forth on a on a um, whatever belt overhead. Uh, you know, too often church is a source of entertainment. The way that churches count is just numbers. Uh, you are a statistic. Uh, I remember a, a pastor that I had when I was younger who would repeat all the time, they don't count unless we count them. And that was just about the monthly and weekly attendance. Um, a true biblical anthropology takes into account the whole being. Uh, obviously, it does. God who made us and saved us and fills us and indwells us. I mean, my goodness. Um, but I, the church doesn't. And I think that's where we come into conflict. Uh, I think that the marriage of capitalism and, and the United States religion of Christianity was so thorough for so long. Uh, that we can't we can't get to the point of divorce. We can't even get to a point of separation to where we can say, let's put you over there and evaluate this relationship and if we really want to do it. No, no, no. We, we, we're to the point where to even get onto a stage to speak at a Christian conference or a larger Christian church, you have to have what? A product to sell. You have to have a book that you've produced, which is why everybody wants to write a book. In order to have a book, you have to have a Twitter and an Instagram following, which is why everybody wants a platform so that you can get a book deal, so that you can go speak at these conferences and have your ideals promulgated. So even the idea of how you get to be a Christian leading thinker requires an accommodation to capitalism already right off the bat. Mm. Uh, and, and that's dismissive of even what happens when it comes to churches being able to hire somebody, pay a full-time salary, keep their building on and their lights on. Uh, you know, how churches end up unintentionally kind of uh, leaning towards their richer membership because they've got to have the revenue in order to keep the lights on and keep the pastor paid. I mean, capitalism is so thoroughly invaded and, and really runs the American Christian church uh, that, that we don't have the ability to criticize it because we'd be criticizing ourselves. And because we can't criticize it, we're coming up with all kinds of poisonous political theologies uh, that, that really can't arrive at an answer to what's really ailing the people in our communities and in our congregations. I just keep coming back in my mind to the stakes of the overall debate. And I think one of the fundamental questions is about Christendom itself. I mean, Doug Wilson brought this up in some of his recent writings about the controversy, and this idea of mere Christendom. And personally, I repudiate Christendom and oppose it as a concept, following Vladimir Soloviev again in his work, um, Lectures on God-Manhood. I think Christendom is a historic mistake. It's falling to the temptation of the devil in the desert for worldly power and temporal power. And I think that the church historically, especially in, West, in the West, in this context, in magisterial Protestantism, fell for this, right? Luther betrayed the peasants. There was Geneva. There was the whole issue with the Church of England. It's, there's always been this church and state uh, ethical, spiritual compromise. And I think part of the issue is that my counterparts on the right don't seem to really be Pauline in their political theology. They don't seem to care about archons. They don't seem to care about the fact that the prince of the power of the air is the god of this world, that we are in a war. We Christians are in a war in this world, that this world is not our home, as Chrysostom and Basil and so many of the church fathers said. And these church fathers are absent 
from Wolf and all these guys. Because these church fathers say, as you were pointing out, Pastor Marsh, hey, what about your second coat? <laughs> you know, we don't want to read. We don't. We don't want to read Basil's sermons. Uh, as uh, why would American you be Trinitarian? I mean, I honestly have more respect for the Unitarian guys than I do for the people like Wolf, because at least the Unitarians are like all that stuff that's Catholic. That's bullshit. We don't need this. Trin- <laughs> you know what I mean? But why would you accept like half of Basil and not the other half? Because uh, he, you know, he he only had one coat and one. Uh, uh, I mean, goodness. If you go up to Moscow and you can find this stuff online, I'm not besmirching, you know, or making something up. Uh, you know, there's real estate deals in the millions of dollars affiliated with that church. There's entire neighborhoods that are being developed uh, in the name of that church to where they can uh, enhance their Christendom. There's real money getting slung around. Mammon is delicious. And I think that we don't really take into consideration just how much Mammon corrupts the intentions behind whatever good it is that we think that we're doing. It's so hard not to have it take over for us. Um, so I, I do, I think that, I think that the other thing that happens though, is that the language, the language that you just used, for example, the powers of uh, this world, uh, the, the archon, the, the devil himself, right? That they are able to change the location of that to something identifiable, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, the Democratic Party. Uh, so it's a literal can... inversion of St. Paul. Yeah, no, no. But what they're doing is just redefining and positing, okay, here's what Paul says. Now we're going to put that in these people. And uh, they drink blood and they have a pizza parlor where children are chained up in the basement and being sexually abused. You know, they're able to create these entire kind of meta narratives and mini narratives to where we are battling the darkness, but here's the darkness. It's a person and it's a party. And if you just fight that person and that party, then somehow uh, Jesus wins. Hmm. I guess, Jacob, you're the demographic that is being uh, fought over here, the future of the Reformed uh, Christian movement. Pastor Marsh and I, we're old hat. We're no longer really in play. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about this? Are you willing to come over to the apocalyptic side? <laughs> I, I, I think that there's a lot of great... Uh, theology and wisdom uh, up there. And I, I need to read a lot more of the church fathers and understand that, but I'm not, um, yeah, I think, um, I want to learn those perspectives more. I don't think it has to be contradictory necessarily to, um, the reformed theology I hold now either. Yeah, I think that any any uh, any time you end a podcast with "I need to read more of the Church Fathers," you probably won something there, Henry. I think you. you that's that's, a that's big what go. I'm here to do. You know, I'm here to promote uh, people. Really, one of the reasons why I talk about forms isn't just obviously Plato and his theory of the forms, but also this concept uh, from Giorgio Agamben and others of forms of life, right? And we need to all be developing forms of life that allow us, in our case as Christians, to live the gospel in this world. That impulse is fine. I just strongly disagree with Doug Wilson or Stephen Wolf or Thomas Acord that the way you do that is you retreat to, you know, Bucksnort, uh, North Carolina and get 50 acres or whatever. If you want to get 50 acres in North Carolina, that could be interesting, but not just for you and your family, man. That's not the way it's done. You got to get into the Great Dismal Swamp. Yeah. Oh, good heavens. Uh, No, that was a 
capitalistic uh, endeavor in and of itself that absolutely backfired and almost mm. killed everybody involved. Yeah, I, I think that what we're encountering in that question of 50 acres uh, and the woods is this question of uh, testimony too. Because if you haven't experienced uh, the, the working of the Holy Spirit to prompt you into community of faith to where you can live a vibrant, fully orbed anthropology, you're going to start scratching for something. You're going to search for something and you're going to get frustrated. So I think that the other thing that can't be missed is, um, you know, I was just preaching out of Acts chapter three and four, uh, where they healed a man who was lame from birth. And, you know, that's the testimony before they ever open up their mouth to talk about uh, and confront the Sanhedrin and do the whole nine yards. There's a, the power of God at work. And and you lose that. Um I think it's a theological problem that it's lost in the sense of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of dispensational theology, a lot of reform theology, not all of it, certainly, but a good amount of it can be really practicably since cessationist in nature. I mean, I, I always joke, they really only believe in two and a half persons of the Trinity. Uh, and, and they don't seek the filling of the spirit. And they don't seek, you know, the revelation of God's power in this life. So I, uh, and it happens in Baptist world. I mean, it happens everywhere. It's not a knock particularly on Presbyterians. That's just who we're talking about today. Uh, it's, it's kind of a universal that the supernatural gets subsumed and, and taken over by the practicable. But I think that if we seek testimony, it invites people into a different way of living to where they're not trying to run off in the woods or they buy 50 acres because they're wanting to start a, a farm that can, you know, bless other people or, you know, whatever they want to do. They start to think intentionally. Um, you know, I love, that's why I go back. You talked about the Anabaptists. I was heavily formed by Stanley Harbaugh and, and Will Willimon, uh, in this notion of being resident aliens, this notion of, uh, you know, we, we do fight against the dark powers. Uh, what does it look like to be a, a politic that is distinct from and different from the world? Uh, and, and how do we make intentional decisions that lead to that? If people haven't seen it, they really, they really can't even conceptualize. So they go into the default modes of uh, the ways of the world. And so testimony matters. And, and I just hope that as more and more pastors and leaders are thinking about how people really live their lives, like Jacob, you said, the full anthropological understanding of a human being, that they start to create patterns of testimony in their congregations where people are living a different life uh, and not just, you know, what I call kind of, uh, you know, blessing the ways of the world or, you know, sprinkling the ways of the world and just kind of sanctifying the way they're already living. But really, I take up your cross and follow me is is a whole life endeavor. It's it's not just like a Sunday only thing. I, I do think um, just as I maybe a addendum to add on here um, before we leave um, as, you know, relating to this, this holistic anthropology of the, the human being and the sense of alienation um, people are feeling. I think um, that social media and technology are playing a huge role in this that we don't even fully understand yet. Um, but it it almost is providing an avenue for a lot of these people to kind of escape the real world and form these community, you know, escape their feelings of alienation and form the these communities with. Um, like-minded others who are maybe pushing in more and more radical um, through these online communities. Um, but, you know, and we see connected issues like um, the epidemic of pornography use among young men, my, my generation, my age group, like it's definitely a huge, 
enormous issue. I mean, I couldn't help but read a lot of um, Thomas Accord's tweets about women, honestly, and think, yeah, this this dude is probably these ideas have probably been shaped by pornography. Like that's just my immediate assumption, um, and that's I, I, and I think you see that in the the trad wife phenomenon. Like th- that's definitely you know pornography addiction is definitely behind these kind of you know very um i guess idealized or kind of you know 1950s housewife aesthetic it's bdsm it's very, aesthetic it, it's almost like you know you look at some of this um some of these tweets that are on on twitter or some of the stuff on tiktok and it's almost like something similar here is going on to as what's going on in pornography well, especially because uh, you can now in reality and it's it's gone from like when I was younger, which was like magazines and then eventually online videos and that sort of stuff to now you can have like your virtual girlfriend through OnlyFans, right? Like, so right. now they're scratching yeah. a relational itch again through capitalism uh, that right. uh, really is designed by God to be satisfied in, in a meaningful um, lifelong bond of of love and charity and kindness and all the words you want to ascribe to it. So uh, I I think you're absolutely right, Jacob. Yeah. I think you see a lot of, um, especially young men who are broken by some of these phenomena, by some of these phenomena who are, um, you know, to their credit, to their credit, I would say most of these men would say they're, they're against pornography or they're fighting against these things. But I think these things have affected a lot of them and they're looking for some sort of, some sort of, um, you know, relational connection, this community, a strong reaction to all this alienation and things are going on. Um, but they're finding it in the internet and, and, and on, you know, radical communities online, which, you know, maybe, um, like if they end up moving to Moscow, Idaho and actually participating in that community, that, you know, is more real and more tangible than the internet. But, it's also similarly a retreat from um, kind of engaging with a hostile culture. But I think you see, um, yeah, capitalism and, and social media and these forces are, are converging to kind of just recreate a lot of the same problem that got them to the alienation in the first place. Well, on that note, I know we're running out of time. I appreciate both of you coming, and uh, hopefully we can continue to have discussions, Twitter discussions, Twitter spaces, podcast episodes in the future.